Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. Getting pretty serious today, gang. What is our episode, Donna? We're talking about in concert. The air date was the 11th of February, 1980. Written by Stephen Campman. Directed by Linda Day. The staff at WKRP find themselves consumed with guilt for promoting a Who concert at Riverfront Coliseum when its general admission policy causes a terrible tragedy. We need to put a big spotlight on our director. Linda Day was born Linda Brickner in Los Angeles in 1938. She started her career as a script supervisor and assistant to the producer on Soap in 1975. She came to WKRP as assistant to the producer for Pilot Part 1. She was quickly made an AD, that's associate director, starting with Pilot Part 2. Linda will rack up AD credit on 54 WKRP episodes, and weirdly, that number also includes this one. Linda Day will direct a total of 11 WKRP episodes, making her the fourth most active director on the series, right behind Asad Kalata. Linda will go on to direct more than 350 episodes of television for more than 50 different series. She will become one of the most prolific female television directors in history. She receives a special honor from the Directors Guild of America for her work in paving the way for women in television. So why is this episode such a special one for Linda Day? This is her very first credit as a director on any show anywhere. They say a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. This is Linda's first step as a TV director. Let's get into the episode. We start out in the studio, and since we're in the studio, we got to be doing a poster watch. Really just a lot of movement this week. That Joan Armitrading poster that we saw out in the hallway outside the bullpen is now in the studio. The Jefferson Starship strip has moved up to the top of the door, and that Big Oceans poster has moved over. Our only new poster this time around is the survival poster under the studio window. This is the 11th studio album from Bob Marley and the Whalers. The poster looks like the album cover. It depicts the flags of 48 African countries, 15 of which don't exist anymore, and Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is the only non-African country flag on the album. The scene opens with the camera showing a microphone, but nobody behind it. The song playing, The Wait by The Pretenders, comes to an end, and Johnny comes rolling into the frame, clumsily banging into the desk. Johnny announces that he is taking calls for a chance to win two tickets to the big concert tonight. The caller just needs to complete 
this sentence correctly. Disco is... Johnny takes a call. Fine. Wrong. <laughs> Caller number two. Disco is... Uh, heaven. You people are way off. <laughs> Caller number three, you're on. Disco is hell. You got it, my man. We forget. There's a time where people used to like disco. Well, not everybody. Well, yeah, not everybody. But there was a time where people really liked disco. Johnny is playing a tune called The Wait by The Pretenders. Johnny mentions this is a pre-release single. This track is from the debut self-titled album by the British-American band The Pretenders. The band formed in the UK, but lead singer Chrissy Hind is from Akron, Ohio. The album was released in the U.S. on December 27th of 79 and then released on January 7th of 1980 in the U.K. The Wait was a track on the album, but it was not released as a single. What Johnny's looking at is a picture sleeve for the single Stop Your Sobbing. The Wait was the flip side to Sobbing. Stop Your Sobbing would only reach number 65 on the Hot 100. The standout cut from this album would be the third one released, Brass in Pocket. It will hit number 14 on the U.S. Hot 100 in February of 1980. I picked up on a weird studio detail just because I was looking for it. Actually, both... Mike Hernandez and I were wanting to get a look at an actual 45 single sitting on a WKRP turntable. They always play albums. If you watch this cold open closely, you'll notice we never see the turntables. It's like they aren't even there, and we do not get to see a 45 sitting on the turntable. I didn't even notice that. Not there at all. Because, you know, they show them so often in my head, I thought I saw yeah, them, I no, guess. If you're really looking for it, I wanted to see that 45 sitting there, and nope, we don't get that shot. Johnny asks for the caller's name and tells him he just won two free tickets to the big concert tonight. Your name, sir. Wayne Kluge, why? Oh. Johnny tells him to come to the station to pick up his two free tickets. Wayne Kluge sounds familiar. Do you think that's Steve Campman doing a voice? We don't get a voice credit as usual. Right, and it does sound very similar to... The guy who was harassing Sparky for tickets yes. in Sparky. Here's Wayne. Wayne Kluge, why? Oh. And here's the guy that was calling Sparky. Oh, like, hi, man. I'm calling about the free tickets. Now, if you were listening in 1980, you would have heard Johnny go into Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Shout Factory, unfortunately, couldn't clear the stones, so we get a generic piano riff instead. This is what it sounded like originally. Well, Wayne, you just won two free tickets to that big show tonight. Uh-huh. Now, you can pick up those tickets anytime before 4 o'clock this afternoon from our lovely receptionist, Jennifer, okay? Oh, boy, where do I pick them up? Well, you have to come down to the station to get them, Wayne. Just look it up in the phone book, okay? KRP time is 9.43, and everybody in town is getting ready for that big concert tonight at 8 o'clock. In the meantime, we've got to keep rocking, babies, so let's dip into the doctor's bag and see who's in there. Surprise! How's your morning, Johnny? Um, Weird as usual. Pulling those from the Big D, Dale Kovar's set of recreated discs. And here's how it sounds after the Shout Factory edit. Well, Wayne, <laughs> you just won two free tickets to that big show tonight. Uh-huh. Now, you can pick up those tickets anytime before 4 o'clock this afternoon from our lovely receptionist, Jennifer, okay? Oh, boy, 
where do I pick them up? Well, you have to come down to the station to get a Wayne. Just look it up in the phone book, okay? KRP time is 9.43, and everybody in town is getting ready for that big concert tonight at 8 o'clock. In the meantime, we've got to keep rocking, babies. So let's dip into the doctor's bag and see who's in there. Bye. How's your morning, Johnny? Weird as usual. Bailey comes into the studio. She asks Johnny how his morning's been. Johnny tells her, weird as usual, he gives Bailey the name of the ticket winner. Even though we don't get to hear it, let's talk about Sympathy for the Devil. This is the opening track to their 1968 album, Beggar's Banquet, and it's one of the Stones' most controversial songs. You can hear the controversy right there in the title. The Stones were already rumored to be devil worshippers. The album just before this one was titled Their Satanic Majesty's Request. An interesting but maudlin detail, the recording for Sympathy began on June 4th of 1968. It contained the line, I shouted out who killed Kennedy. Two days later, on June 6th of 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated in California, and the line was changed to who killed the Kennedys. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul Sympathy for the Devil is listed as number 32 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Johnny turns the sound down in the booth so he can talk with Bailey. I know you probably think that a personable hip DJ like myself has a date for the show tonight. Yes. Let's not beat around the bush, okay? I'm sorry, Johnny, but I'm already going with somebody else. Johnny tells her that she could have beaten around the bush a little longer. He then asks Bailey who she's going to the concert with. Oh, he's a manic, depressive divinity student who has a serious drinking problem. (laughs) Sounds like Father Fun. Yes. Les comes into the studio as Bailey starts to leave. Bailey turns back asking Johnny what that remark was supposed to mean. I got father fun. Wasn't that obvious? I thought it was. He's drunk and depressed and a divinity student. Yeah, I didn't know what Bailey meant by her question. Yeah, Johnny tells Bailey it was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. Seriously, Johnny, he's a very generous, heavily sedated man who happens to like to help others. (laughs) Besides, you could have asked me last week. Well, last week I was heavily sedated. (laughs) Bailey leaves, shutting the door behind her. Johnny looks at Les, who's concentrating on his tear sheets. I don't know, Les. What do women want? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but Les really puts a lot of thought into it. He looks up from his tear sheets. Tupperware. Les might be onto something. (laughs) Tupperware is the name brand for a system of plastic food storage containers. They were invented by a Massachusetts man named Earl Tupper in 1946. He came up with the snap-on lids and the burping method for pushing air out of the container. Starting in 1951, Tupperware was sold through parties held by housewives all over the United States. Now let's go to a little town in New Jersey where things are really popping. Yes, there's a party going on at Mrs. Betty Martin's house. It's a Tupperware party, and it's really fun. The girls get together and meet their old friends and make some new ones. 
Then there's a demonstration by one of the Tupperware dealers who lives in your community. And you have not lived until you've been to a Tupperware <laughs> party. Ooh, they're wild, oh, I tell you. My mom hosted several of them when I was a kid. Tupper sold the entire operation to Rexall in 1958. Today, Tupperware is still marketed through parties in more than 100 countries. The number one market in the world for Tupperware as of 2013, Indonesia, with sales of more than $200 million U.S. And that burp takes us into our theme. (laughs) WKRP in Cincinnati. Come back in Art's office where Art's lying on his couch, tossing a ball up and down in the air when Jennifer enters carrying a tray. Your hot tea with lemon. Art gets up from the couch and goes over to the chair at his desk. And here, I want you to put this on. I beg your pardon? Put this mask on. Jennifer holds up a flimsy mask with some squishy blue gel inside it. Art asks, what's that? We can hear Carlson is pretty plugged. This is my European aqua pack. Good Lord, Jennifer, what's that supposed to do? Jennifer explains it surrounds the eyes with comforting, warm water. Alleviating clogged nasal passages, tired and puffy eyes, hangovers, and other head discomforts. And wow, that is quite a pitch she goes into there. Art is interested. Searching masks in a COVID world does not yield European aqua masks. I did find something called the Aqua Bomb Night Mask, but it was a face cream Amazon does have full face gel masks that are kind of the same theory, but these are way weirder looking than what Art's wearing. Jennifer slips the mask over Art's head and over his eyes. He says he can feel the effects of the mask immediately. Oh, 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 my word. Oh, 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 that's warm. Jennifer hands Art a vacation magazine she brought for him to browse through to take his mind off the dreary winter. I brought you this wonderful travel magazine with color pictures of Hawaii, Pango Pango, and Tahiti, my personal favorite. Art tells her she is a gift from heaven. Jennifer tells him to keep the eye pack on, and she heads out of his office. Andy comes into the office as Jennifer leaves. He stops looking at Mr. Carlson, who is still wearing the blue mask. Mr. Carlson looks up from the magazine. You wanted to see me, Kimasabi? <laughs> <laughs> Carlson tells Travis not to get around. He tells him he's not feeling good. Shall I ask about the mask? No. Okay. <laughs> Travis driving into work today. I listened to KRP. Why? <laughs> Carlson tells Andy that he felt like it. That's why. He then tells Andy it doesn't sound like his station. It doesn't reflect his tastes. I don't like the music, and I'm not sure I understand it. I can't imagine him not listening on a regular basis to his own station, that he only rarely tunes it in on the way into work. So Andy said, Kimo Sabi, this is very famously Tonto's nickname for the Lone Ranger. Kimo Sabi is actually a Hollywood word, but it might be based on a Potawatomi word that means he peaks or he peaks in secret. A version of the word also appeared in one of the very first Boy Scout manuals in 1912. There, it was defined as meaning trusted scout. Jim Jewell, who directed the Lone Ranger series from 1933 until 1939, says he took the word from a boy's summer camp in Michigan that was called Camp Kimo Sabe. Andy tells Carlson they've been down this road many times before, and he asks him what the problem really is. 
He tells Andy that Carmen has conned him into taking their son to that rock concert tonight. Wait a minute, you and little Arthur are going to go to this rock concert? Yeah. I think that's terrific. Travis can hardly talk. He's laughing so hard. No, I mean, I can't believe it. Really? You're going to go to a rock concert? He's covering his mouth with his hand as he laughs, but Carlson is not amused. Maybe if this station had been promoting that rock concert, my kid wouldn't have heard about it and I wouldn't be taking him tonight. So Art's ready to change the entire format of the station just to get out of going to this concert. Bandy tells Art they aren't promoting the concert. They're just giving away free tickets for publicity. Okay, so what is the difference between... I I didn't understand when Andy said this, that they're not promoting it, they're just giving tickets away. When you give tickets away to a concert, isn't that a type of promotion? Well, I think the difference between promoting and tickets for publicity is kind of a fine line. We think that Andy means WKRP isn't hosting the concert the way they did with Scum of the Earth. It's possible another station in town is the official hosting station. So even though another station might be promoting as host, a band will release giveaway tickets to every station in town, and they use it as a form of free publicity to promote the concert. We're giving away free tickets for publicity. How do you think you got your tickets for tonight? To promote the concert. Yeah, yeah you, to you just promote said that. the concert, but, so it's, but it's free publicity. Well, I think they're promoting it. Carlson asks Travis how he thinks it's going to look a grown man like him going to a rock concert. Carlson is face-to-face with Travis, looking at him through the little <laughs> eye holes in the mask. What I'm saying to you, Travis, is that I just don't want to look bad. <laughs> you can see Travis is having to hold back his laughter. That one prop. They're getting a ton of mileage out of that one prop. <laughs> through the whole first part of the show. Art begins to reminisce about the time when people would get dressed up to go hear a live band. Like Tommy Dorsey. Duke Ellington. Travis tells Art the music might be different, but the spirit's the same. You're going to listen to a live band, and you're going to have fun. Well, I hope little Arthur has fun, because he could be a miserable little wretch. Travis tells Carlson he knows little Arthur's going to have a good time, and Art says he'd better have a good time. Uh, Mr. Carlson, before I leave, I owe it to myself to ask one more time. Why the mask? (laughs) It's a European aqua pack. One more time on the mask. Travis still just confused as ever. (laughs) We come back to the bullpen and we have a poster watch. Behind Herb is a trippy sci-fi looking poster of an alien creature standing in a lighted ring looking at an artifact on a pedestal. Styx fans will recognize this as the back cover art from their 1979 Cornerstone album. Okay, this is the junior high me saying this, but man, I love that album. Babe, Lights, Boat on the River, Borrowed Time, I Love Me Some Sticks. Cornerstone was their ninth studio album, and it came out in October of Pen, we can see Johnny lying on the couch reading the newspaper. Bailey is sitting at her desk, and Les is crossing the bullpen to his office 
when a singing herb walks through the door. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nesman. This is the Les Nesman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nesman. Right upper forearm. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nesman. And it's time! Herb Darling, fashion alert. Herb is wearing shades of brown with a hint of blue plaid suit jacket that has a solid light brown collar and solid light brown pockets. Peach colored dress shirt light brown pants, and shades of brown, yellow, white, and blue-green diagonal striped tie, white belt, and two-toned brown and white shoes. Bailey asked Herb if he's going to the big concert tonight. And pollute my brains with drugs, loud music, and a lot of carefree sex in the aisles? No way. (laughs) Bailey tells Herb to get in the game. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I happen to be in the game, Bailey. The selling game, four tickets, 28 smacks. Some people call it scalping. I call it smarterino. Johnny sits up and informs Herb that the tickets are going for $50 a piece on the street. Bailey does the math and tells Herb he could have made 200 fast ones. Yeah, I I knew that. I was just testing you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now hang on a minute. I needed a moment to process this. Everybody got free publicity tickets from the station. Herb must have gotten four. He scalped his four tickets for a total of $28. This means he got $7 for each of them to a rock concert. Now, since he mentioned scalping, the 7 must be above face value. So these tickets to The Who were going for less than 7 bucks. But if he'd actually known what he was doing, he could have gotten 50 apiece out on the street for a quick 200 big ones. Okay, I just needed to get that sorted out. Johnny goes over to Bailey and asks if she has changed her mind. Sorry, Johnny. A manic, depressive, divinity student with a drinking problem? Give me a break, Bailey. I drink. (laughs) Bailey tells Johnny the other guy asked first. And boy, Johnny does drink. He knows how to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Johnny, turn pro. Forget the Olympics. (laughs) We hear a banging sound, and we see Les working on his teletype machine. Bailey says Johnny should ask Les to go to the concert with him. Yes, fairly bizarre. Andy suggests he ask Mr. Carlson to go with him. Johnny tells Travis, nah, he knows his limits. Andy says it's Carlson's first concert. But I want him to go with the seasoned pro. You'd be doing me a favor. Why not you? Travis tells Johnny he made a date weeks in advance. And Johnny asks, who is he taking? Let's just say she's from Belgium, and I am pretty pleased. Sometimes Andy says the most cryptic things. I googled dating Belgian women just to see what I'd find. According to the internet, Belgian women are universally considered to be classy, stunning, and quite lovable. Belgian women are also known to be loyal and stalwart friends. There are, no joke, several comprehensive guides to dating Belgian women on the internet. So maybe Andy knows what he's talking about. Now you deleted all that, didn't you? After you found that information, I don't want you going back to that. Yeah, I cleared out my search history on that one. All right, don't go back to that site, dear. (laughs) Johnny makes his way over to Les's desk. Well, here goes some pride. (laughs) Les has bent over his teletype machine, his head down inside of it. Johnny walks up to the door of Les's office and says his name. 
There's no response. Les, are you in there? You know I am, John. Johnny opens Les's door. Johnny asks Les if he's free tonight. In the larger sense, are any of us free? I don't know, Les. <laughs> I just wondered if you wanted to go to the concert with a free-willing hip DJ like myself. Johnny tells Les that they'd have fun. Les smiles and begins to chuckle a little. Well, it is true, John, that every once in a blue moon I like to veer off into something loose and uninhibited. Well, <laughs> great. But why don't we get together? But about not tonight. Six- Johnny tells Les he doesn't get it. Les gets a little upset and raising his voice tells Johnny not to push it. He's busy. Wow. And he's adamant about it, too. Johnny tells Les he's sorry. He just thought he might enjoy it. I do appreciate the offer, John. It- means a great deal to me. Johnny says he didn't mean to complicate his life. He just wants him to be happy. Les turns and looks at Johnny with a very serious look on his face. I am sorry, John. I'll make it up to you somehow. (laughs) We never find out what Les has going on that night. Les leaves the bullpen heading out the door to the studio hallway. Johnny stands with a confused look on his face and then... Looking at the others, he comments. I, I feel like Les and I just broke up. <laughs> <laughs> and it you know, seems so angsty. Les in the door had so much angst. Yes, Les was very serious there. It came from his heart. Herb gets up from his desk and walks over to Johnny. Sorry, John. Uh, I'll go with you. Well, thanks, Herb. Uh, it just doesn't feel right so soon after losing Les. <laughs> Putting a hand on Johnny's shoulder, Herb tells him he understands, and he goes back to his desk. Venus enters the bullpen. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a very nice dark brown leather jacket with a faux fur collar, a white scarf under the jacket's collar, maroon pants, a green turtleneck sweater, and we think that's a Star of David necklace again. Brown, black, and white checked driving cap. Yeah, what early worm brings the blackbird in? Herb tells them Venus has been invited to be the guest DJ to the concert tonight. Venus explains a few years ago he knew some of the guys in the band. Hold on. Gordon Sims, on the run Vietnam deserter, school teacher, AAA baseball player, and New Orleans DJ. Also knew some of the guys in The Who? Venus has lived many lifetimes prior to landing at WKRP. He's being picked up in a yellow limo by ladies wearing tight satin jeans and sporting gold angle bracelets. The Lord is kind, John. (laughs) Johnny begins fanning himself with a folded magazine. Venus asks John who he's going to the concert with. So far, uh, Jennifer, Bailey, and Les have totally, without restraint, uh, just rejected me. Why don't I ride in that limo with you? Huh? Oh, I couldn't put you through that, John. Sure you could. Oh, no, limos are not your style. Oh, come on. Let me ride with you. I'll sit in the front, okay? John, there's some things a man has to face alone. This is definitely one of them. <laughs> Mr. Carlson comes into the bullpen, still wearing the aqua mask. I think he's forgotten yeah, about it. Yeah, he doesn't know it's on. He asks for everyone's attention. Andy stands behind him with his arms folded across his chest like a bodyguard or a trusted Indian guide. Everyone is staring at Carlson as he's standing there in his mask. 
Carlson is oblivious as he announces they are excused early from work in order to go to this thing tonight. Travis here tells me that we've got general admission seating, so you're going to have to get there early to get a good seat. And he mentions general admission seating. Yes, he does. This is our first hint that there might be a deeper message to this episode. They all continue to stare, no one saying a word, and Carlson tells them to get back to work. He leaves the bullpen with Andy following behind. And that brings us to... The line of the episode. Who was that masked man? (laughs) We're making a lot of Lone Ranger references without talking about the Lone Ranger. Masked Texas Ranger John Reed first appeared as a radio show in 1933. The show debuted on WXYZ in Detroit. It was a huge hit. It spawned a series of books, comic books, several films and a TV series that ran from 1949 until 1957. Many people have played the masked man, but none more famously than Clayton Moore, who portrayed the Lone Ranger on all but one season of television. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver. The Lone Ranger. Hyo Silver! With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early West. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. His trusted sidekick, Tonto, was played by Jay Silverheels. Silverheels was a Mohawk Indian from the Six Nations Indian Reserve located in Ontario, Canada. Who was that masked man? We head to the lobby where Johnny's sitting in a chair talking to Jennifer. Jennifer has a box of chocolate. She offers them to Johnny. He tells her he doesn't know how she does it. I mean, what's the secret? Is it exercise or diet or what? Jennifer asks him what he means. Well, you know, pecan breakfast cake and butterscotch almond explosions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just never gain any weight. Well, it's simple. I don't like that, so it just leaves me alone. <laughs> if only it were that easy. Oh, I wish. Carlson comes out of his office and asks Johnny what he's doing out here. Johnny tells him he's just hanging out, copping some candy. I told you no more riffraff in the lobby. <laughs> Jennifer tells Mr. Carlson Johnny doesn't have anyone to go to the concert with. Putting his hat on his head, Carlson looks at Johnny. Okay, Fever, you can go with me. Carlson tells Johnny he's going with little Arthur. Johnny tells Mr. Carlson, okay, count him in. Jennifer, ever attentive to Art's needs, puts his tickets to the concert inside his jacket pocket. She reminds him he has to pick up little Arthur from karate class. Now, do you remember your way to the Coliseum? Yes, ma'am. She holds up a map, and I love this. She takes Art's finger and traces it along the route to the Coliseum as Carlson watches. Then Art looks at Jennifer. Am I going to have a good time? Well, of course you are. Ah, good. You going? Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Of course she's not going. Carlson turns to Johnny, puts his hat on his head, and tells him he thinks he's ready. Well, Johnny tells Mr. Carlson he doesn't think he is. I don't know what this thing is that you're wearing on your head. It's a hat, John. Anybody can tell I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this disco bondage headgear. Disco bondage headgear. <laughs> Definitely an honorable mention for yes. line of the episode. Carlson reaches up, 
takes the mask off, saying he forgot all about it. He puts his hat back on his head and asks Johnny. All right, how's that? <coughs> great, just great. Now it looks like I'm going to see the who in the company of a narc. <laughs> <laughs> they walk out of the lobby. And this is our first mention of a band name. Johnny said the who. Mm-hmm. Everyone is going to see the who in Cincinnati. Johnny used the word narc. Narc was first used in 1955 as a slang term for a narcotics hospital. In 1958, it was used to describe a narcotics addict. Neither of those stuck. It's generally agreed the first use of narc to mean a narcotics agent was in 1966. Bingo! That one stuck. And that's what Johnny's using. Narc also sometimes means a snitch and to narc on means to turn somebody in. Okay, we have just hit an act break. They have gone to a commercial, and we need to pause here to set the scene for what's coming up. Yes, this is a real event. The Who concert they're attending on December 3rd, 1979, at what was then known as Riverfront Coliseum. This was a big tour for The Who. It was their return to live performing following the death of drummer Keith Moon. The tour consisted of 35 dates in both Europe and North America. They were supporting their new album, Who Are You? Tickets were selling like crazy at all stops on the tour. The Cincinnati show was a sellout. More than 18,300 tickets were sold. Of that number, 14,770 were unassigned general admission seating. These are first-come, first-served tickets. Unassigned seating was a normal practice at that time. General admission ticket holders started to line up at 3 p.m. Accounts vary as to what specifically happened, but 11 concert goers aged 15 to 22 were killed by asphyxiation. The sustained pressure of the surging crowd made it impossible for them to breathe. 26 others suffered trampling and physical injuries. Stephen Campman followed stories about the tragedy closely over the holiday break. Coming back in January, he decided it was something WKRP had to address. They were a rock station in Cincinnati, after all. Campman went to Hugh Wilson with the idea. Hugh couldn't see a sitcom taking on the topic, but he gave Campman the green light to give it a try. Campman and the writer's room delivered what was basically this script. Hugh backed it to the network. Initially, the network said okay, but by the second day of rehearsals, they changed their mind. They said, stop work on it, do something else, it's too sensitive. Hugh Wilson went to the cast and took a vote. Should they listen to the network and stop? Or continue. Frank Bonner said it was unanimous. The cast liked the script, and they wanted the chance to tell this story. The city of Cincinnati was against it. Without having seen the episode or even knowing what it was about, the CBS affiliate in Cincinnati said they would not air it. 
They also refused to provide Hugh Wilson with any footage from the actual candlelight vigil. It wasn't until they were shown a closed-circuit rough cut of the episode that they agreed to allow it to air. Ultimately, the episode was hailed as putting a much-needed spotlight on a dangerous practice. Frank Bonner said the cast received thank-you notes from the families of some of the victims. Okay, that gets you up to speed. Pause over. Now, also we talked about when people started watching this episode, when it originally aired, they were ready to sit down and watch a funny comedy sitcom WKRP. They had no idea what was coming. I also think about the studio audience sitting there thinking they've gone into a taping of Ha Ha Funny Funny WKRP and suddenly, bam. They're about to get punched in the gut. We return to the bullpen where the entire staff, with the exception of Art, are all there. Johnny's pacing back and forth. He's very agitated. I don't know, man. I just can't believe it. I mean, 11 kids lose their lives for what? What do you expect at these things? Venus is at the DJ's desk with his head down, resting on his arms. He raises up and addresses Herb's comment. What the hell does that mean, man? You ever been to a concert? No, sir. But you're going to get this when you got a got a lot of teenagers crowded together and worked up by a lot of loud rock music. Les joins in on the conversation, pointing out to Herb that this tragedy happened before the concert even began. Jennifer comments that it seems unreal. And Bailey adds she just can't believe it. Johnny is feeling especially guilty. I gave away tickets for the thing. Art enters the bullpen. He is jaunty, and it is a real contrast between the mood of the room. He has no idea what happened at the concert last night. Good morning. Oh, man, do I feel terrific today. Jennifer, you did it again. Coal to mine, right out of my head. Right into mine. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Venus. You know, I got a confession to make. I went to that rock concert last night thinking I was going to hate it, and I ended up having the best time. Mr. Cross. Not now, Jennifer. I'm on a rock, a roll, whatever it is. I'm on it. What's everybody got such a long face for? Travis tells Mr. Carlson he must not have been listening to the station this morning or tuned in anything else anywhere in Cincinnati because this was everywhere that morning. Art tells him he did not. Mr. Carlson, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, Eleven kids lost their lives last night at that concert. Carlson looks as if someone had just punched him in the gut. Art says he didn't see anything. Well, Venus tells him no one did. It happened before the concert started, Mr. Carlson. There was this large crowd outside the Coliseum. Somebody inside decided to open some doors. There was some reserved seating. Mostly general admission. That's what they call festival seating. That's what they call a stampede. And that's what happened. Who didn't even know what had come down until after the show? Mr. Carlson looks physically ill, and he leaves the bullpen with Jennifer following close after him. Travis says that it seems this type of thing has been a long time in coming. He recalls a concert that he attended in Atlanta. General admission seating. Of course, everybody got there early so they could get down front close to the stage, and... When the band was late and starting, everybody started pushing forward. Some of the kids were almost crushed against the stage. It's that damn general admission seating. Venus decides that this concert is just about his last. Travis says that it's not the concerts themselves. The mood is so heavy. Johnny tells everyone he's going down to Snooky's bar. He asks if anyone else wants to go. Venus and Herb join Johnny. 
and they start to head out the door. Oh, I heard there was going to be a, a candlelight memorial service tonight uh, about 7 o'clock at Fountain Point. That's square, Les. Fountain Square. Yeah, Fountain Square. Thank you, John. And uh, I thought I'd go down, and uh, if, if you were interested, we could meet here about 6. They all agree to meet, but they're going to meet at Snooky's rather than at the station. Before they leave, Andy tells them the memorial service should be mentioned all day over the air and during Venus's evening show as well. Johnny, Venus, and Herb leave to go on down to Snooky's. Andy tells Bailey and Les that he is worried about Mr. Carlson. Hard tell him what's going through his mind. This time tomorrow, we might be programming supermarket music. Andy has noticed that Bailey's been very quiet and asks if she is okay. I'm fine. Thank you, Andy. Andy pats her on the back and leaves. Les stands for a bit, looking at Bailey, and then he tells her that he knows she must be upset about all this. We're newsmen. I mean, uh, newspersons. And we've got a story to cover here, a very important one. Bailey looks as though she's on the verge of tears. I don't know, Les. I, um, I feel so angry and um, sad and confused that I, uh, I don't think that I can handle this story. Les really gets in here with a pep talk. He tells Bailey he needs her. She was at the concert, and he wasn't. Look, if, if we work on this thing together, we can handle it better than any other station, local or national. Bailey's not convinced. Les keeps working on her. Les gets her coat for her and puts it around her shoulders. Bailey looks at Les and then gives him a long hug. Les hugs her back and pats her back. Bailey pulls away, thanking Les. What do you say? I say, let's kick butt and get that story, okay, Nesman? Okay, Waters. This was a very heavy scene, but you know, it really shows the versatility of these actors. Oh, yeah. They're funny, they're hilarious, but when they need to be, they're very dramatic, and they can really, they really pulled this off. We come back to the studio, Venus is at the mic. And we hear Remembering the Rain by Bill Evans being played on the air. The light of day now fades, and the evening curtain falls over the sky. People are gathering over at Fountain Square with candlelight, and remembrance of friends lost in the night. Be there, okay? And now here's a little mellow softness from Brother Bill Evans. Something entitled Remembering the Rain. We see Mr. Carlson in the hallway looking out the window. He comes into the bullpen and flips the lights on. Venus groans and Carlson turns the lights off saying... Sorry. No problem. This is usually a go-to joke for them to turn the lights on on Venus. But in this climate, everybody's very sensitive. Yes, they are really paying attention to each other's feelings. Carlson tells Venus that you can see Fountain Square from his office window and that it is lit with candles. Venus asks Art if he's going to the memorial. Carlson says he's going to meet the others at Snooky's. Ah, Venus, I feel so ashamed. We publicized that concert. Gave away tickets. Venus tells him they need to do something about it. Make sure it doesn't happen again. He reminds Art there are lots of kids waiting to see concerts including Little Art. Oh, yeah, I've been thinking about that all day. Carlson then asks Venus 
how his cold is. Venus gives him a sarcastic great as he pulls another tissue from the box. Carlson pulls the blue aqua mask from his jacket pocket, offering it to Venus. Just what does this thing do anyway? It'll fix a cold or <clears throat> give it away, one or the other. <laughs> Venus holds it up to his face and looks through the eye holes. Whoa. <laughs> Feels weird. <laughs> good. Carlson asks him if he would like it. A black man in a mask in public. I don't know about that. Putting the mask on the desk, he tells Carlson that he will use it at home. This is a deft hand. It was so serious. It was so heavy. It's been heavy since we came back in the bullpen. We needed a little laugh here. Just a little release. Just just to let the pressure off. And that was a nice way to do that. That was very, very well done. Carlson asked Venus if he wants to know an amazing thing about all of this. Yesterday morning when I went into my office, I... uh, I'd never been to a rock concert. Didn't like the music. I didn't know any of the groups. Completely uninvolved. And now that's changed. With a concerned look on his face, Venus asks Art if he's going to be changing the station back to elevator music. We're a rock and roll station, Venus, and we're going to stay that way. Venus tells Carlson he's relieved to hear that. So is Andy. (laughs) Yeah, and Andy. And was Andy. Art tells Venus he'd better go. The others will be waiting on him. Venus asks Art to take a candle for him. Looking at a poster of Cincinnati, Carlson tells Venus that there's talk of setting up a committee to discuss what happened. It's not going to be just talk. This town's going to do it. Oh, it's a good town, Venus. We're responsible people here. Carlson walks out of the studio, leaving the door open. Venus turns up the sound and you hear the song ending. And you hear Venus quietly say, Good night. And the camera moves out of the studio door to give you a view out of the hallway window of what looks like candle lights down below. No crowd noise, just quiet. Before showing the closing credits, these words appear on the screen. On December 3rd, 1979, 11 people died outside Riverfront Coliseum. On December 27th of 1979, the city of Cincinnati passed an ordinance prohibiting festival seating or general admission. And that's going to do it for a very serious and very important WKRP episode. Next week, we get back to a few laughs. Donna, what's our episode? Next week, we'll be talking about the doctor's daughter. After being separated for seven years, Johnny's daughter, Lori, comes to visit her father, bringing with her a new boyfriend. Johnny immediately steps into the role of the disapproving father and learns that there's a lot he doesn't know about his daughter. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, check our show notes. You can also find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The 
the WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!